Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard the term postmodern or postmodernism. Anybody? Okay, so somewhat familiar with the term. It's an interesting term because a lot of people are familiar with it, but it's hard to define. Um, postmodernism, um, it's a way of thinking, it's a worldview that's so prevalent today that it just kind of feels like that's just sort of the way it is. You know, people have always thought this way, but that's actually not true. Postmodernism is a relatively new worldview. It sprung up in the late 20th century. It now is kind of the default way of thinking in the Western world. It's the dominant outlook in pop culture, definitely on university campuses. And here's what postmodernism is in a nutshell. There is no real objective truth. Everything's relative. Meaning comes not from some objective truth or reality, but just from our personal values or community values. Uh, This is the postmodern outlook. Um, And when you kind of key into that, you'll start hearing it in a variety of ways uh, in our culture. You know, what's what's good for you is good for you. You know, what's good for me is fine. Um, The conversation isn't about truth or the truth. It's kind of this my truth or this is their truth, his truth. These are postmodern type of statements. Um, and that's, it's a very new way of thinking. If you rewind a little bit in history, the pre-modern way of thinking was basically, you know, think of the Middle Ages. Basically, priests or princes just said, this is the truth and you have to believe it. You can't question it. That's it. And so truth was just sort of dictated to you. Then came the Enlightenment, um, which basically got rid of the pre-modern way of thinking. And in in the Enlightenment, human reason is everything. You can reason your way to truth. The power of the human mind can discover truth. The founders of America were Enlightenment thinkers. That's why when you read things like the Declaration of Independence, it says, um, we find these truths, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal self-evident. You know, this is just, you can arrive at this conclusion of truth if you just apply your mind to it. That's enlightenment thinking. Well, postmodernism just dethroned that. It it just did away with all of that. The idea of objective truth and reasoning, there's no real truth. There's no universal ethics. It's really just about our personal values and our ideas about truth. This is, this is kind of the way the world thinks now. Why am I giving you this philosophy lesson? Because at the heart of the Christian faith are very specific claims about objective truth, about historical reality, claims that fly in the face of a postmodern mindset, because Christianity is not some abstract philosophy. That's not what it is. The gospel, the, the word gospel actually in the biblical language is good news. It's an announcement of something that actually happened, events that have occurred that give us hope. Um, And in a postmodern landscape that we're living in, uh, it's not enough to just know kind of what we believe. We need to know why we believe what we do, Um, to have not only assurance in our own faith, but to be able to thoughtfully dialogue with people who think differently than we do and to, to explain why we believe what we believe. And Christianity can stand up to scrutiny. Um, it has never been, and it is never meant to be, a take-my-word-for-it religion. That's never been the way it is. Jesus claimed to be God, and he demonstrated his claims were true through his life, his miracles, the fact that he died, people saw him die, and then saw him alive again. And so Christianity has this very historical character to it. It's based on events, things that actually happened. And it was very public in its claims. Jesus did ministry very publicly and very public in its writings as well. We're going to see, we're going to get into that a little bit today. Christianity has never been 
uh, as many philosophies are today and other religions, kind of a one person says, hey, God told me this, or I believe this, so you should believe it too. That's not remotely what the Christian faith is based on. Um, And so we need to know what it's based on. We need to know why we believe what we believe. In fact, Jesus' disciple Peter said this. He said um, in one of his letters, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And we need to remember this last phrase. (laughs) Do this with gentleness and respect. So we need to be able to give reasons. And so as we continue today in this deeply rooted series, we're going to talk about our spiritual heritage again and and a subject that is really common to anybody who is a Christian or is a part of the church, which is how do we get the Bible? Where did this come from? Why is this important? Um, So the, the kind of key question we're going to be driving at today is this. Why do we believe the Bible to be true and why does it matter? Why do we why do we believe the Bible to be true and why does it matter? Um, to answer that question, we need to know how Scripture came together. Uh, and in doing that, in knowing how Scripture came together, we're going to gain confidence um, in um, the biblical documents, uh, the sources behind them that are tied to Jesus, and it's going to prepare us, again, to engage with others who might have questions about this. I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer before we get into this. Today's message is going to be pretty different compared to what we normally do here on a Sunday. Normally, what we'll do is we'll pick a passage of Scripture, we'll kind of walk through it, talk about, you know, what does this mean for our life, and um, and apply it, and that's kind of the standard fare for Sunday mornings. But uh, today is going to be a little bit more kind of educational, highly informational. I'm going to be throwing a lot of information at you, a lot of names you've never heard before, dates. Stick with me. Hang with me on the front part of the message because this is all really important information to have a sense of. And when we get to the the latter part of the message, we're going to talk about why this really matters to know for our life. Um, But it's just so important that we be willing to think about these things and talk about the historical basis for our faith. And and I think what we have the opportunity to do here is what Jesus talked about in Matthew. Um, He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We're going to try to do that today. We're going to try to worship, love the Lord with our minds. We're going to apply our minds to a set of information that is fundamental to our faith. And so I hope you come along on that journey and really just try to soak it in, take notes. Um, If you're just exploring this, if you're new to the church, you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, I hope you feel welcome here. We're glad you're here. And I hope you feel at the end of this that there's some real substance uh, to our faith. There's, there's, um, Real reasons to take this seriously. Here's how we're going to proceed. I'm going to walk through some periods of time in history and kind of what was going on in those times and how they build up these building blocks to uh, why we believe the Bible to be true and to be uh, of divine origin. So like I said, I encourage you to take notes. We'll have basically kind of two things we're following, a time period and then a building block from that time period. And we'll go time period, building block, and these building blocks are going to add up to a case of why we believe the Bible uh, to be true. Um, We'll put scripture as we go on the screen, so don't feel like you got to flip through your Bibles and keep up or anything like that. Um, So we're going to get into it. All right, the first time period when we're asking the question of how did the Bible come together is the Old Testament period. This is the first one, and I put approximate dates on here. 
the Old Testament. Now, we're going to focus on the New Testament for today, uh, but I do want to make a few comments about this period of time. Uh, A lot of the documents that ended up being in the Old Testament were written in these years. They were written by a variety of authors. Some of them were kings, some prophets, administrators, priests, people like uh, Moses, for example, King David. They were written over centuries Um, And they were believed by the Israelites to accurately capture what God was doing in their life and in their community. And so they were believed to be holy scriptures of divine origin at the time that they were living in this season. Um, And and this is kind of the key point I want to make, is that by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish canon, was basically closed. They weren't really adding any new books at that point. And so what you see in the New Testament is Jesus and the New Testament writers speaking about the Old Testament as if it's divine scripture already. By the time of Jesus, they're doing that. Uh, I just want to give you one example. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, he's talking about how the Old Testament had predicted him as the Messiah. And look what he said. Jesus said this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So, so right here you see Jesus referring to the Old Testament as scripture, and he even, he even refers to it by the traditional divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and then the other writings, the Psalms. Um, and so the New Testament authors just assumed that the Old Testament was divine. It was reflective of what God had done in Israel. And generations of Israelites had believed this. They based their whole nation on the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And so the New Testament authors, they never even defend the Old Testament or try to prove that it's scripture. They just assume it. So by the time of Jesus, that was all locked in. So that's the first time period. Here's the first building block of our case, if you're taking notes. Building block number one is that Jesus and the New Testament authors viewed the Old Testament as Scripture. There's no debate about that. They viewed it that way. Jesus and the New Testament authors viewed the Old Testament as Scripture. And by the way, many things predicted about the Messiah in the Old Testament came true in the life of Christ, uh, once again attesting to their divine origin. Um, So that's the first building block of this. Here's the second time period, the life of Christ. So this is the next phase here, the life of Christ. When he was alive, walking the earth, um, what do we see there? This was a new era in the history of the people of God. God is walking the earth. He's no longer speaking to people through prophets and in those kinds of ways. He becomes one of us and speaks to us as one of us. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament described this era this way. He said, in the past, he's talking about the Old Testament period, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So it's this new era, God speaking to us as one of us and and. It also represents God coming to earth to be observable. That's why he chose 12 disciples, by the way. And Jesus conducted his ministry in a very public, observable way. Thousands of people followed him. He was saying the same things over and over again, traveling around, and everybody saw this. His miracles were public. This was nothing, you know, kind of hidden or secretive. And so Jesus is there, he's doing his ministry, and, and, and Jesus gives some of the reasons why he surrounded himself with disciples. Look what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, 
We read this. Um, Jesus said, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. He's talking to the disciples there. Everything I've taught you, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of this when I'm gone. And then he says in the next chapter, 15, the Spirit will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. And this is this really important element that this introduces when we think about the New Testament as Scripture is the, the issue of eyewitnesses. The disciples saw Jesus' ministry up close. They knew him, and this was all public, and the crowds witnessed it too. And so this is part of our understanding of why Scripture is reliable and how we got Scripture is this issue of eyewitnesses. So I want to put this up here now, uh, this next kind of little building block here from this era. Building block number two. Jesus' ministry was public, observable, and witnessed by many people. Again, it wasn't secretive, it wasn't hidden, there weren't questions. He was just out in the open doing everything he said and did. It was public, observable, witnessed by many people. So after Jesus' life, we go into kind of this next stage of history, which is this. I call it the uh, spoken period. It's like the 20 years or so after Jesus' life. The spoken period. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. During this time, after Jesus had been resurrected, None of the documents that ended up in the New Testament had been written down. So Jesus had lived and taught a bunch of things. Lots of people heard it. And now in this spoken period, they're just repeating it, memorizing it, teaching it to each other in their homes, in their small church gatherings. This is when the church is exploding in growth. And they're just repeating over and over again what Jesus had said. And now this culture at the time was very used to memorizing large passages of the Old Testament. So this was normal for them, for, for the teachings of uh, a famous rabbi or something to be known by memory because most people were illiterate and, and or they c- couldn't afford their own copy of something. So people were used to not having something written in front of them. So it wasn't a problem. They knew what Jesus said. They repeated it over and over again. Um, so this is another p- building block in this um, discussion is this. The building block number three, the words of Jesus were memorized and repeated continuously in these years right after his life. Um, They were just spoken about on a daily basis. And and by the way, Jesus taught in a very memorable way, these parables. And and, um, so, so people remembered what he said and they repeated it. Now, as the church began to expand out from Israel into other cultures, a set of documents began to be produced about 20 years after Jesus's life. And this is the next historical phase here. Letter writing, starting in the 50s A.D. Uh, It probably started earlier than that, actually, but the the copies we have are from this era. Um, So you have people like the Apostle Paul and the other disciples of Jesus. They're shepherding these early congregations of Christians, and they're trying to encourage people in their faith, and they're writing letters to basically pastor these churches remotely. They're writing all these letters. All these letters are being sent. And these letters are to encourage people and teach. And they're written, these letters, by people Jesus chose to be his witnesses to the world. And so these letters end up being the earliest Christian documents written down. And at the time of their writing, we can presume that the writers didn't necessarily think they'd go on to be scripture. They're just letters. But these are the first things written down. Later, when they were collected in the New Testament, and we'll talk about that in a moment, 
They were given different names. So uh, when Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome, later people gave it the title Romans, but it was just a letter that was sent to the church in Rome. And so we have a bunch of these letters now in our New Testament. And again, all this is happening very soon after Jesus' life. Most of the people who knew Jesus are still alive. All of his followers and disciples are still around, and they're leading the church. Um, In fact, in one of Paul's letters, he basically paints that picture. He's talking about all these people Jesus appeared to when he was resurrected. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is talking about, look, Jesus was raised from the dead and all these people saw it and most of them are still alive. And so these letters are being sent to churches. They're passed around among the churches. So why do we believe the Bible to be true? Here's another building block in this discussion. Number four, the New Testament letters are a window into what the earliest Christians believed. The New Testament letters are a window into what the earliest Christians believed. And in those letters, when you read them, they clearly believe the Old Testament was divine. Jesus was real. He really died. He was really raised. He really was the Son of God. They believe this. And they were still living in the time period of people who had seen him, had seen this with their own eyes. So it's all happening very early. But something changed when you get into the 60s, so about 30 years after Jesus' life. And, and what changed is persecution, violent persecution, broke out against the Christians, spurred on by the Roman emperor Nero, um, but in other places as well. And so some of these Christian leaders who go back to the time of Jesus are starting to be imprisoned. They're starting to be killed, you know, in gladiatorial arenas and things like that. And so there was a feeling among Christians at that time that these disciples, the eyewitnesses of Jesus's life and ministry, should commit their memories to writing, so that future generations could know what they had to say, the first generation, the eyewitnesses. Now, they weren't really needed in written form before that. This actually proves how good the memory of the whole Christian community was. Is it was only when the apostles' lives were at stake did they think, hey, we should probably write this down, because they're not going to be around forever. So they start writing this stuff down, and that leads us to kind of the next phase, the four Gospels. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament. They, are, they start to be written down in the 60s through the last couple of decades of the first century. Uh, this is when they're written down. Now, the material they're describing is from much earlier, but this is when they're actually written down. They're not telling new stories when they write this stuff down. They're writing down what everyone already knew. And everybody, you know, so many people who knew Jesus was still alive. So they couldn't just make stuff up. And these were reliable sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote this down. All four of these gospels were written by either a a disciple of Jesus who knew him personally and was in his inner circle, or it was written by someone who had an apostle as their source. So very reliable sources. These aren't written by anonymous people centuries later. No, this is first-generation eyewitness accounts. Um, I want to give you an analogy of uh, how credible the gospel writings are um, with a modern news story. You guys remember that story this past year of the, uh, the soccer team in Thailand that was stuck in the cave and the, the floodwaters? I was just riveted by this, this story. And if, like, one of the divers 
who was involved in rescuing the boys wrote his version of what happened, we would probably treat that as pretty credible, like he was there, you know? And then uh, we would also probably consider it credible if, like, you know, uh, a famous journalist wrote an account of what happened based on interviewing the soccer coach or the boys who were in the cave. The reporter may not have been in the cave, but their source is someone in the cave or a diver or something like that. That's what we have with the Gospels. We, we, we have these early eyewitnesses, people in Jesus's circle. It's not remote, okay? And in fact, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he lays out his methodology. Did you know that? One of the Gospel writers gave his historical methodology up front. Here's what I'm about to do. Look what he said. This is the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Theophilus was probably a, a government official who had come to faith in Christ, and Luke is writing this gospel, and he's saying, I want you to have certainty about what you believe. And I'm going to list my sources here. It's eyewitnesses. This stuff has been passed down. Everybody knows this. And so why do we believe the Bible to be true? Again, we're building this case. Here's another building block of this. The Gospels were written early by reliable sources during the lifetime of many eyewitnesses. Written early uh, by reliable sources during the lifetime of many eyewitnesses. By contrast, in the ancient world, you have lots of like biographies of famous people like Alexander the Great and things like that. They'll be written by someone who lived 500 years after Alexander the Great. Just, you know, here's what I've heard, and, you know, they weren't there, nobody's living who was there, and they take on a very legendary character. But this, no, this was people who had a front row seat to this, writing during the lifetime of lots of other people who also saw it with their own eyes. So we're going to go now to the next phase. We've only got a couple left. Um, and it's the circulation and canonization. And this is the part that I kind of want to lean into, the part that I think most of us don't have a real grasp on. Canonization just meaning uh, going from these documents that are just sort of, you know, being written individually to being a part of what we consider the Bible. Um, so how did it go from these first century documents being written to being the Bible? Um, this really happened from the last decade or so of the first century through 393 AD. And here's how that went. As the church expanded into new areas, these documents, the gospels, the letters that were being written, they were copied and they were shared and they were circulated. They were translated into other languages as necessary. It kept expanding out. We have evidence that the gospels were first collected, just the four, and passed around as a set for a little while. Also, Paul's letters were collected first for a while, and they circulated by themselves. Um, so for a little while, parts of what became the New Testament were circulating in smaller groups among the churches. Um, so how did they go from that to being viewed as kind of authoritative scripture? How did they end up being placed along the Old Testament, alongside of it, in what we call the Bible? Some have the impression that like a council got together of like priests and they kind of privately decided what scripture is going to be and said, we decree this is scripture, believe this now because we said so. Um, that's not at all what happened. 
That's not even close to what happened. There was a council involved at one point, which I think leads people to that impression, but that's not at all what that council did. So we're going to talk about that. It was not, the canon was not formed in a private, one-time, formal moment. It was formed in a very public way, a very long-term way, and it was more informal than you might imagine. And it started out this way. After the first generation of Christians um, passed away and the second generation of Christian leaders kind of took their place and began leading the church into the second and third century, they started writing stuff. They started writing letters to each other, writing documents about who Jesus is and that sort of thing. And what we see them doing is quoting the Gospels and Paul's letters and things like that as Scripture. So they already, by the second century, are looking back to the first century writings produced by the apostles, and they are viewing them as having the same authority as the Old Testament because they tie back to Jesus. These are people who knew Jesus. They saw Jesus. They heard him teach. Their writings have a special status because of that. And, and, and as more Christian writings were produced in those centuries, there was a need for the church as a whole, many churches, to determine which of these documents were special and were tied to Jesus or the apostles and which ones weren't. Because, again, persecution was happening. And the Roman authorities at times were trying to confiscate Christian scriptures and burn them. And that's an important question. If, if, you know, someone knocks on your door and says, you're a Christian, what scriptures do you have? Bring over here. What are you worth dying for to protect? If you have a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, is that worth dying for, potentially, as opposed to XYZ, other Christian document that you might have? And many of our ancient brothers and sisters in Christ did die to protect the, the documents that ended up being included in the New Testament. And we forget that. We take that for granted. You know, we got the Bible in our own language. We got it on our phones, and it's easy. And that's wonderful. I don't mean to sound cynical about that. It's an amazing thing. But somebody paid a really high price for that to be possible for us. And they were grappling with this question of which documents rise to that level of importance that I would die to protect this. And they were the ones that went back to that first generation of eyewitnesses, apostles, who attested to Jesus' life and ministry. And, and so as that conversation was happening in the early church over a couple centuries, we start to see Christian writers talking about this in their writings, saying which documents go back to the first generation and which ones don't, and that sort of thing. And I'm going to give you two examples, just so you can get a flavor of this, but there's hundreds of examples I could bring. Here's one. There's a guy named Irenaeus. Anybody heard that name, Irenaeus? I'm impressed. <laughs> Chad, you were here last service. That doesn't count. No, you, you probably already knew his name. Um, but he, uh, he was a Christian leader in the second century, so like, you know, mid-100s, late-100s. And he wrote a, a lot of stuff. He was uh, based in what is now France, but it was part of the Roman Empire. And, and he was writing about this, like, which documents are important and special. So he wrote, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome, laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, that's the Last Supper, 
um, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So you can see early in the second century, there's already this effort to say, these writings are special. Here's who wrote them. Here's how we know, you know, how they were written and how they're connected back to Jesus. That was a conversation that they were having. Here's another example. Athanasius, he was a key leader in uh, North Africa and Alexandria. Egypt, and um, in 367, so a couple centuries later, Athanasius had this really interesting job. It was his job to write a letter to every church in the world and tell them the date of Easter. Hey guys, Easter is <laughs> March 18th this year. And uh, in those letters, they were called festal letters, he would include other stuff because it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to take the time to write to like 800 churches. <laughs> I'm going to say some stuff, communicate some other important agenda items. One of them in this year was to articulate, again, what all the churches seem to be saying are the important documents that go back to the time of Jesus. And so he says it here. We, may, we must not hesitate to name the books of the New Testament. They are as follows. Four Gospels, and then he lists them. After these, the Acts of the Apostles, and then the seven so-called Catholic Epistles of the Apostles as follows. And he names those, James, Peter, John. Next to these are the 14 Epistles of the Apostle Paul. Those of you who know, Paul wrote 13 letters. He said 14 because he thought Hebrews was written by Paul. Um, and then he names all those letters. Next are the two letters to Timothy and Titus, last to Philemon. Moreover, John's Apocalypse. That was the term for the book of Revelation, is Apocalypse. So Athanasius in 367, before the Bible is formalized, is saying these are the ones that go back to Jesus and that first generation of the apostles. He's listing the exact books that ended up in the New Testament. Before the New Testament was the New Testament. And many other writings, writers did the same thing. Now, they didn't give us a list. We, we, we didn't, like, dig up in the desert somewhere a list of criteria, like, here are the three things that have to be true of a document for us to believe that it's special and divinely inspired and goes back to Jesus. But when we look at everything all these writers were saying, we can kind of extrapolate a few things they seem to think were really important that set certain documents apart. And this is what it is, the next building block here. The criteria of canonicity seem to be apostolic origin, meaning it was written by an apostle of Jesus or, or someone very close to them, written in that first generation, and based on what the apostles were known to teach. So apostolic origin, widespread use. The churches were scattered all over the Roman Empire. If, like, there was a certain document that these churches in North Africa loved, but none of the other churches in Italy or Greece or Turkey or anywhere else thought it was anything important, it didn't catch on. It had to be universally thought of as, yeah, this is special. This goes back to those eyewitnesses Jesus wanted around him. And then finally, traditional use. It had to have been viewed as special and important from the beginning all the way up to them. It couldn't, if a document just sort of appeared in the year 300, people were like, no, <laughs> that's not, I don't think so. So this, these are the kinds of arguments they were making, tying it to apostles. It's, it's universally recognized, and it's always been viewed that way. These seem to be the reasonings they used to set apart the documents that became the New Testament. So just to quickly summarize, to be regarded by the early church as scripture in early Christian texts had to have an undisputed, unbroken link to the apostles who knew Jesus. It had to reflect the earliest teachings of the church and had to be accepted by the church as a whole across the Mediterranean. Um, and, and it was informal and it happened over time, this process of canonizing. It was public. It was not behind closed doors. But if there was a moment that was formal, it was something that happened in 393, called the Council of Hippo. 
the Council of Hippo, 393. Hippo is the name of a city. Here's a map. And you know I was not going to miss the opportunity to make a hippo joke. It was right here. North Africa in what is modern um, Algeria, I believe. Basically right across the water from Italy was the city Hippo, Hippo Regius it was called. And um, this is where the council met. All the churches from all over the, the Roman world sent delegates. And they all met together. And at the Council of Hippo, they formalized the Old and New Testament as it appears in our, in our Bible. And they wrote about this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just so you can see it. Council of Hippo 393, it was resolved that nothing should be read in church under the name of the divine scriptures except the canonical writings. The canonical writings then are these, and they list the Old Testament books, but then here again, the New Testament is listed exactly um, as it is in our New Testament. So that was a decision that they came to. But I have to make this really important point. This is so key. They did not, this council did not give authority to these documents. They recognized the special importance and authority they already had. It's a big difference between I'm conferring authority onto this, believe this now because I say so, and these appear to be the important writings. We're going to sort of formalize that. Let me give you one analogy just to kind of make the connection a little closer. So the Star Spangled Banner... Our national anthem was written in 1814. It was not made the national anthem for over a century after that. So it was just a song a guy wrote. But then over the decades, over the next century, that song took on an importance in American history. Certain military bands started playing it, started to be played at baseball games. It just became, through virtue of its importance and use, it, it became the national anthem. It sort of on its own steam. And so when Congress passed a resolution in 1931 making the Star Spangled Banner our national anthem, were they making it important by doing that? No, they were recognizing its importance in American life. It's a very similar situation with the Council of Hippo and the canon. The Council of Hippo was the end of a process. Over time, the church as a whole, of which Christ is the head, had recognized that these 27 documents in the New Testament were special. They were written by people who had an up-close view of Jesus, reporting accurately what he said and did. It was a public, long-term process of what ended up in the Bible in the New Testament. One final stage of history is, is basically from then till now, the transmission to us, 393 till now. How do we know that what we have is is an accurate representation of what it, these documents said in the ancient world. Um, I don't have time to develop all this, uh, but suffice it to say we have a ridiculous number of early, high-quality, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. This is what they look like. So there's a really early Greek copy of one of the New Testament documents. Here's the Hebrew of the Old Testament. These things go back thousands of years, and they're very high-quality, and as they get copied through the centuries, there's almost no differences. There are little variations, but it's because like a scribe got drowsy and misspelled a word or something. There's no substantial differences between them. And so we can have a high degree of confidence when we read our uh, Bibles in English that it, it accurately represents what the ancient original version said. Because you can actually read this if you have a copy of the new NIV or something and you go to the front, they'll actually say for a few pages of their manuscripts, like what they're basing this on, and they're basing them on these ancient high-quality manuscripts. 
So our Bibles today are based on the earliest high-quality manuscripts available, ancient copies. Um, and so this, that's, this is the final building block right here. Our English Bibles are based on thousands of ancient, meticulously copied manuscripts. Thousands. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of them earlier than the Council of Hippo. And our English Bibles are based on them. So we have an, just immense amount of ancient evidence for what was written by these first century eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. Now, there, there's a lot I could have covered that I didn't, trying to keep this thing relatively brief. Um, I want to make two book recommendations for those of you who'd like to explore this a little bit more, uh, particularly with the Old Testament, which I didn't cover a whole lot of, other than to say Jesus viewed it as scripture. Um, there's an author, F.F. Bruce, who is probably one of the uh, most respected biblical scholars of the 20th century. He was a, a believer in Jesus, but he, he was mainly in the secular university system in the UK, University of Manchester and some other places. And he wrote this book, The Canon of Scripture, talked about all of the Bible. And then if you want a little lighter read, this one's like 100 pages, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? And he talks about the historical reasons to trust the New Testament. Um, so F.F. Bruce, he, anything he wrote is, is incredibly valuable and, and reliable. So we started off with this question, why do we believe the Bible to be true, and why does it matter? Now, look, there's no simple one-dimensional you know, answer to that. As we've seen, it's a cumulative case that needs to be made of why we believe the Bible is reliable and accurate. Um, and so we've kind of walked through this all. I want to show you a little bit of a timeline here. Do not feel like you need to write this down, because we are actually have copies of this that we're going to let you pick up on the way out. Also, we will share this on social media so you can download this image. But when you walk through and you see the whole case, in the Old Testament period, all these documents are being written. Jesus and the New Testament authors viewed them as scripture. You have the life of Christ. Jesus' ministry is public, observable, witnessed by many people. Then this spoken period where the words of Jesus are memorized and repeated continuously. Then this letter-writing era where these letters are this window into what the earliest Christians believed about Jesus. Um, then the four Gospels, which are written early by these reliable eyewitness sources. And then the circulation and canonization. We talked about these criteria of how they had certainty that went back to the first century. And then the reliable copying of those ancient manuscripts. So, so you know, you kind of walk through that and you start to see the cumulative force of all of that. Let's catch our breath now. Everybody take a deep breath with me. Okay, that was a lot of information. Why does all this matter? Why does it matter? God is the God of history. And he deliberately stepped into history as one of us. And he wanted to make himself known and make himself knowable and invite us into a relationship with him. He wanted to be historically known and, and verifiable. Uh, he didn't want to be a mystery. And we weren't alive in the first century to see him with our own eyes, but by God's grace, men and women who were around him witnessed him, memorized what he said, told it to their friends, told it to their kids. Eventually, the Holy Spirit moved some of them to write down their accounts. Those accounts were collected, circulated, and then copied and transmitted down to us through history. And so even being removed by 2,000 years, we still have a very accurate window, a front row seat to what Jesus said and did, and we can know who he is and step into a relationship 
with him, which is why he came in the first place, to show us who he is and what he wants for our lives and to let us know beyond any doubt how loved we are. And so the answer to why we believe the Bible to be true, why this matters, is this. Knowing why we believe gives us assurance in what we believe, which gives us hope. Knowing why we believe gives us assurance in what we believe, which gives us hope. That's ultimately what this is about, is the life, the hope that is found only in Jesus. I want to close uh, with just a few words from the Gospel of John. Uh, When John, who was in Jesus' inner circle, when he wrote his Gospel, he actually said a couple of words at the end about why he wrote his Gospel. And I think it just speaks exactly to why this is important for us. Look what John said in John 20, 30 to 31. He said this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says it there. He says it all. By knowing what Jesus said and did, you can know him. By believing in him, you find life. Jesus gave his life to rescue us, to invite us into a relationship with him. And that gives us hope when we go through life now. When we go through life now with all of its ups and downs, all of its struggles, all of its uncertainties, we can grasp onto the fact that God himself came in the flesh to demonstrate beyond any doubt how valuable we are to him and the purposes and plans he has for our future. We are loved by God more than we could imagine. And so even though we weren't there in the first century, God provided a way for us to see that, to have a front row seat to the greatest act of love and sacrifice in history. When Jesus gave his life for us, we get to see that. We can know about him and we can know him and have confidence in what we know about him because of what has come down to us in Scripture. Now, I covered a lot of information, um, you know, and there's so much more that could be said to add to the case, more building blocks, things like that. But, but I just want to make this, this final point. You know, faith is always going to be part of the equation. Now, I could sit here for six hours and just keep listing off, oh, this archaeological evidence and this manuscript and this other writer and doesn't this just force you to believe in God? All of the, the force of all of this evidence? That's not what it's about. In fact, there's this moment uh, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead when, you know, his disciples are kind of like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see him and I can touch him with my own hands. And Jesus says, you know, it would have been better if you'd believed without seeing. <laughs> That's an interesting comment. He's saying there is, faith is always part of the equation, even when you have the evidence. Faith is always part of the equation. But I hope you see after looking at some of this that the Christian faith is not some blind leap of faith across some grand canyon of uncertainty. That's not what it is. It, it is a very small, reasonable step of faith with all kinds of reasons to believe that it's true. So faith is always there, but it's, it's a small step.